Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Hey, it's great to see you, whether here or uh, you're joining us over in our other venue in the Ridge. I want to welcome you all here. Uh, excited to be with you. My name's Michael. Um, I'm one of the pastors, and wasn't that an exciting time of worship this day? It was just awesome. Uh, love that. You know, I was thinking um, that you may not know this, but you know, when you sing that in Hallelujah Come, and uh, you may not know this, but in Hebrew, Hallel means to call upon or to praise. Yah is a shortened form of Yahweh. Uh, and so when we're singing hallelujah, we're, we're, we're calling on Yahweh to come. This is why so many names in Hebrew uh, end in Yah, like Elijah is, is Elijah. It's my God, El is, uh, is Yahweh, Zephaniah. Uh, and so um, what a beautiful thing to call on him and say, hey, we're here for you. Would you come and, and be with us? And so uh, excited about that. Anyway, um, just one quick announcement is I want to give you an update. Last week, uh, if you were here, I announced this, but uh, it's actually changed a little bit. And I know a lot of you probably couldn't be here last week, but uh, the, uh, this water initiative they're doing to, to uh, do water wells in Tanzania in, in conjunction with a missions trip we're taking Global Ministries this summer. We're going to be sharing Christ for the second year in a row with these uh, Muslim communities uh, that have never heard the gospel before. Uh, last week, I announced that we had uh, surpassed the $50,000 mark in that water initiative, but this week, we're up to 57000 So uh, that, that just continues to come in. So great job with that. Um, but we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. And so inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. You'll definitely want to take that out as we jump in. And if you guys are ready to go, I'm ready to uh, jump in. You guys, you all, you all set? Okay, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here and to call upon you, Yahweh, to call upon our, our King, uh, our Lord, uh, to call upon the one who's manifest and revealed himself in Jesus. Joshua, Yahweh is salvation. And as we come through this series, as we continue on today, this journey, God, and we talk about those who have traveled from distant lands to pursue you, we pray that that would be the cry of our heart, that we would be pursuers of the King. And we pray this in your name, amen. Our story starts today. It's a, it's a dry land. It's a dusty land. Uh, it is a hot day, and uh, he's in a quandary. He's not sure what to do. Um, there's been many times over his life he's been in tough political situations, but this is by far the, 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 the hardest. Uh, for the last several years, he's been ruling the land over which he has been put in charge of. Things have gone well. One of his first uh, first responsibilities was to put down the bandits in this, in this area to kind of claim the land. He's done that successfully. But uh, shortly into his reign, a, a civil war has broken out in the empire. And, uh, and so it's, it's kind of come down between two key leaders, two key armies, and he has backed the wrong leader. Uh, the, the man he has chosen has just committed suicide. And so he is stuck now. The war is over, and he's on the wrong side of the, of the winning general. And so the question is, what does he do? Now, it's not the first time he's been involved in political intrigue at an international level. He's always been able to maneuver his way out, but this time he's not so sure. Uh, does he run for his life? Does he head for the hills? Or does he move towards a storm? Does he go and beg forgiveness and, and hope that somehow not only his life will be saved, but that, but that he will actually be allowed to continue reigning? And so as he looks at this difficult situation, he weighs the options. He's never been one to back off a challenge. He decides to be big and to be bold. He gathers up his team, and they begin the long trip towards the coast where they will get on a ship and take a long voyage to go into the eye of the storm. 
Well, today we are continuing this series that we've been in for about the last month now that's uh, called uh, Unfiltered, Capturing a True Image of Jesus. And for those of you who are brand new, we're just really glad you're here, uh, whether here or over in the Ridge. We're excited about that. Uh, this series, you know, uh, kind of the, the core concept of this series is that uh, in our world today, most people have studied this, uh, historians, uh, philosophers would agree that Jesus of Nazareth is by far the most influential person in world history. But as we've shared week by week, that the irony is here in Western culture, with each passing year, we're, we're more and more ignorant of who he, who he really was. And so what happens is that we tend to kind of build up uh, kind of filtered images that are often based more on our cultural trends or our personal preferences, kind of our personal identity, rather than, than the real Jesus of history. And so the goal in this series is to go back and to, we're going to go back to one of the, the early, first and earliest documents that documents the, the life and teaching of Jesus. It's called the Gospel of Matthew. And our whole goal is to go back in time, first century eyes, look through this, the account in, with, with new eyes, and to capture some new images of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him today. And so, uh, so inside uh, your, on your program, you'll see there that there's a section that is called uh, the unexpected visit. And so today we're, we're, we're launching into uh, Matthew chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up and turn them on. Uh, it's a pass- fascinating passage. Today what's going to happen is we're going to see an unexpected visit to the new, uh, to, to, to visit the, the baby Jesus. Uh, and today is going to be a particular challenge because as we've said throughout this series, that one of our, our, our challenges, one of our goals is to take off our 21st century lenses and to look at the story, the account of Jesus through first century Jewish eyes. And this is particularly tough today because today we come to one of the most famous stories surrounding the life of Jesus, and that's the visit of the Magi. And pretty much everything you've ever learned about it from Christmas tradition is wrong. So we're going to have to take it off. By the end of the day, you'll be burning your nativity sets. I'm sorry about that in advance. Um, But what we're going to see today is we're going to see an unexpected visit from afar that is going to set in motion a chain of events that's going to lead to both violence and extreme danger that's going to cause this young family to flee in the middle of the night and to head for a foreign country, hoping they can outrun the evil king. And so... uh, there you, uh, so we're going to jump in to chapter 2 and verse 1. And so it says, uh, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, that's in the southern part of Israel, during the, king, uh, during the time of King Herod, that's Herod the Great, we'll come back to him, uh, some magi from the east came to Jerusalem, the capital, and they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose, or in the Greek it could be in the east, um, and they, we've come to worship him. And so let's, let's set the stage. Um, there's, there's fair, it's, it's a fairly complicated story today. There's a lot of historical data we need to understand this through first century eyes. So rather than stopping a million times through, uh, I'm going to at the beginning set this up. I, I want to talk about four key players or places in this story that Matthew kind of introduces in two verses to bring us up to speed. And then we'll be able to go through faster. So there in your note sheet, you'll notice the four bullets. So let's talk about these four key players or places. Number one, Bethlehem. Um, Bethlehem was a small village. It was an insignificant village. 
but it was a very famous village because it was there that the great King David had been born. Now, it's only five or six miles outside of the capital of Jerusalem. That's being very important. Five or six miles is like uh, I, I often walk from my house in Simi Valley. Uh, I walk to the Simi Mall. It's about five miles. It uh, takes, you know, a couple hours. It's not, not very long, right? So, so today, geography is going to matter. Um, and so the thing about Bethlehem is though, though it's small and though it's insignificant, um, there's also an ancient prophecy in the book of Micah that says that one day out of this small and significant, insignificant village, another great leader will one day rise. And so that's all going to play a part today. All right? uh, number two, the second bullet is uh, King Herod. Now this is King, uh, this is, we call this King Herod the Great. And you need to get used to this name because Herod the Great casts a long shadow in the New Testament or the life of Jesus in the early church. And he's kind of the start of a dynasty. So if you've ever read the New Testament, you know this. There's a lot of Herods running around. It gets confusing. This is Papa Herod. This is where the story starts, Herod the Great. Now, the reason we call him Herod the Great is he was actually a big-time leader, gifted leader, gifted military man, gifted political strategist, tremendous builder. He's the guy that, if you've heard of Masada, he built Masada. You heard of the temple in Jerusalem, which was the largest temple in the Roman Empire. It was one of the wonders of the Roman world. That would play a big part in the story of Jesus. He was the one who built that. The whole seaport of Caesarea, the capital of the empire, uh, he's the one who built that. And so uh, big time in the ancient world. He supported the Olympic Games financially. He built temples throughout the empire. Uh, he was larger than life. So he came to power in 37 B.C. Uh, Rome puts him in power. He has some initial success, but soon after, there is a civil war in Rome. Now, uh, this is the guy we started the day with, the story, right? So the civil war starts after the murder of Julius Caesar. And so after Julius Caesar, there's a civil war. The two left standing are two famous generals, warlords, Mark Antony. You may have heard of him, married to Cleopatra. Uh, so Mark Antony and then Octavian, who later becomes Augustus Caesar. Right? So there's a war between these two. Herod the Great backs Mark Antony. Mark Antony loses the Battle of Actium. He soon after commits suicide. And so now Herod is up a creek without a paddle. He has backed the wrong leader. Typical of Herod, what do you do? He goes big, goes bold. He decides, I'm going to Rome. I'm not running away from the new Caesar. I'm running towards the new Caesar. When he approaches, uh, Caesar says, why shouldn't I kill you? He goes face down in front of me. He says, hey, listen, the reason I backed Mark Antony was he was my friend. I am loyal to my friends. If you make me your friend, I will be loyal to you. And <laughs> Augustus says, sounds like a great plan. We're keeping you in place. And so he goes on to rule, catch us, 33 years. So he's going to die in 4 BC, which kind of sets the mark of the birth of Jesus. This is why we know when Jesus was born shortly before that. So in the time of this account, he's about 70 years old. Now, here's the thing we need to know about him. He was not only an incredible leader, he was incredibly brutal. By this point in his life, he's already killed two of his sons. He's killed his favorite wife. 
Yeah, that sounds interesting. His favorite wife, her name was Miriam. She was a princess from the Hasmonean Jewish line of rulership. That comes up later. He'd already killed her. He killed a brother-in-law. He is a brutal man, right? So whatever it takes to secure the throne, that's what we're going to do. So that's Herod the Great. He comes in the story today. We'll, we'll see him many times in Matthew. Uh, the next bullet, the next bullet is the Magi. Okay, so there's, first of all, there are not three Magi, all right? <laughs> there are not three Magi. Uh, we don't know how many Magi there were, but there's not three. We know that. Uh, they're not following a star across the desert. All the Christmas cards are wrong. I'm sorry. Uh, there is a star. We'll talk about the star in a minute. But uh, they're not coming at Christmas, as we'll see. Uh, they're coming after Christmas, maybe six months to two years later. So everything about them is wrong. So what do we know about Magi? Magi are well-educated, gifted, uh, top-level kind of leader counselors that come from the East. Uh, we don't know exactly where these magi are from, probably from Babylon or Persia. Right? They would often serve in the courts of king. If, you, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, they often have the wise men that come in. Those are magi. Right? So catch this, magi by definition are pagans. They worship pagan gods. Not God, gods. Um, they are trained in science but also in black arts. They are experts in incantations and magic and spells and dark arts and occult. They're very famous for their study of the stars, both what we would call astronomy, but also astrology. So these are people that we would say far from God. You know, in the Old Testament, God told Israel you can have nothing to do with sorcery, have nothing to do with witchcraft, have nothing to do with occult, have nothing to do with astrology, absolutely not, banish. That's who these guys are, all right? Now, uh, so the other thing to, for us to catch is that these guys, if they're from Babylon, it's 900 miles away. <laughs> That's awesome. Holy something. All right. Uh, 900 miles there is no Amtrak. There are no buses. This is not, you know, Qatar Air. Uh, this is walking. This is, uh, they're probably wealthy. They may even catch us be emissaries, like ambassadors of a king that are coming to honor, uh, honor a, a, a king. Like this would often happen in ancient, you know, the birth of a new king. You know, people would come ambassadors with gifts. Uh, and so um, they, they may, they're, they're probably traveling in a large caravan for safety, and it's probably taking at least two months, maybe several months more. Think of it, 900 miles divided by the amount of days, how much you're going to travel. You know, if it's 10 miles a day, that's 90 days, right? So you can kind of see how that works, right? So, so that's the uh, Magi. Now, uh, the last thing we want to talk about is the star. The star is a key player uh, in this. And so, uh, first of all, the, notice what we see is that, that they, um, they, they're coming in response to a star that they see when it arises, or in the Greek, it could be in the east. So, in other words, when they're in the east, like in Babylon, they see a rising of a new star. Now, in ancient times, this is huge in the Roman Empire, uh, everyone watched the stars for portents of the future. And so it was often believed that the sighting of a new star or a comet or whatever was associated with the birth of someone special, like a new king. So they're in the east. They see this star. And the question is, what is this star? 
Is it a supernatural star? Is it a natural phenomenon? Uh, scholars, uh, Bible students have made uh, both claims. Some have seen the star as a natural event with supernatural import. Um, so, for example, uh, some have thought this was a supernova, an explosion that can last for months. Others have seen it interesting as, as the alignment of two planets, the alignment of Saturn with Jupiter, which makes a very bright appearing star. Uh, Jupiter, of course, is the king of the gods, and so anything that happens with Jupiter is associated with kings. Saturn in ancient times was associated by, uh, in astrology with, with, uh, with Israel, and so you got Jupiter and Saturn. Some have said maybe this is what's going on. Um, others have uh, suggested it was a comet. Uh, like, we know Halley's Comet went by in this general time period, something that's a comet. Other people say, no, no, we don't think it's natural because at the end of the story, not at the beginning, at the end, the star will move. There's no indication in this account the star was moving across the desert. But at the end of the, at the, end of the account, the star actually moves. That doesn't sound like a comet. It doesn't sound like the alignment or whatever. So many say, no, we believe it's a supernatural star that God provided to kind of speak the language of these astrologers, right? Uh, or maybe even an angel um, that uh, in ancient times, angels and stars often associated with an angel. So we don't really know exactly. But what's really interesting, a couple things to know, is that in ancient times, even outside of Israel, there was an expectation world, kind of worldwide in the Roman Empire that, um, that, that one day, um, that about this time, a, a great leader or king may come out of Israel. And it's interesting, you say, well, how would they know that? But here's what we know. Remember, in 722, the 10 tribes to the north of Israel were conquered and taken to Assyria. In 587, the, the tribe of Judah and Jerusalem was destroyed, taken into Babylon. That's you know, 587 B.C., so for hundreds of years, Jews have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire. This is why when you open the New Testament, Jews are everywhere as Paul goes around the Roman Empire. And wherever they go, they would take their prophecies. They would take their scriptures. And it's very likely that these magi were familiar with these scriptures, with these prophecies. But even outside of Israel, uh, what you'll see is in the Roman Empire, there was this expectation among many that one day a great king would be coming about this time out of the land of Israel. And so for example... Two Roman historians, not Jews, Roman historians, one's Tacitus, one's Suetonius, both first centuries. They're both contemporaries of Matthew, all right? They're writing about the time of Matthew, Suetonius uh, maybe a little bit later. But Tacitus says um, there was a firm persuasion that at this very time the East, uh, and that would be the Eastern Empire, like Persia, Babylon, was to grow powerful, and rulers from Judea were to acquire universal empire. That's Tacitus writing in the first century. Uh, Suetonius, um, throughout the whole of the East, there had spread an old and persistent belief that destiny had decreed that at that time, men coming forth from Judea would seize power and rule the world. So it's kind of interesting. But uh, for whatever reason, uh, they, they see this star, and they put two and two together, and they assume that a, a king is being born in Israel. Now, here's what I want you to catch. Very important part of this story. They do not know where in Israel. So they're taking this 900-mile journey towards Israel. They know a general direction. They believe a king is being born, but they don't know where. And you see this because when they get to Jerusalem, they go to the capital, right? Not because the star led them to Jerusalem, but because where are you going to go if you're looking for a king? You go to the capital. You assume that maybe the king most likely would be born in the palace of the current king. Right there. 
So you go to Jerusalem, and you're going to ask, hey, where's the king? We, we, we know that there's a king. We're in the general direction. We know the king of the Jews, but we don't know where. So what I catch is they're not like following a star, like, oh, here it is. Uh, and so it's interesting because the star is going to get them to Israel, but it's the scripture that will get them to Bethlehem. And this is interesting. And we'll talk about that later on. And so what, what's going to happen is, so, uh, we're going to picture, they're coming to, to uh, Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is a major Roman city at this point, right? Uh, it's a large city, uh, Roman amphitheaters, gladiator stuff. You know, it's like they're, they're coming in a major city, and they're, they're, this is going to create a stir. This is not like three, three guys walking with their camels. This is a caravan, and when they show up looking for a king, this is going to cause a stir. It's like an international deal. These big shots from Babylon dressed in their weird clothes have just showed up. So here we go. So let's pick it up at verse 1 again. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right, five or six miles away from, uh, from the capital, during the time of King Herod, Herod the Great, uh, Magi, we know who they are now, have come 900 miles, let's say, from the east to the capital, Jerusalem, and they're saying, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it arose, or in the east, and we have come to worship him. So when King Herod hears about this, um, it says, he was disturbed and catches all Jerusalem with him. So this is a city-wide event. Um, Herod is, why is Herod disturbed? Because Herod has worked really hard to position himself um, as the king of the Jews. As, uh, in, a, in a sense, uh, um, you know, almost like a messiah. Um, he has married the Jewish princess. He, he's not a Jew. He's from Edom. But his family had been forced to convert to Judaism previous since his grandfather's generation. So he's kind of positioning himself like a Jew. Um, he has married a Jewish princess to kind of v- validate his, his uh, claim. And catch this, he has built the temple. And when you rebuild the temple, there's often associated in this period of time that the Messiah, when he comes, will rebuild the temple. And so he's kind of positioning himself as the king of the Jews. So when someone shows up and says, we were following a star because the king of the Jews has been born, I mean, he has killed his own family members to protect anyone from making that claim. He is very disturbed. The Greek is strong. What the Greek says is he is shaken by this. And catch this, when mama's not happy, the whole family's not happy. So when Herod is upset, this brutal leader, the whole nation gets, the whole city gets nervous. And so in verse 3, it says, when Herod heard this, he was disturbed, all Jerusalem with him. And so he's going to call in the top religious spiritual leaders of the nation. He's going to find out more about the Messiah, more about the great king. And he says, when he called together the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where's the Messiah to be born? And they said, well, very simple, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And they're going to quote two passages in the Old Testament, Micah 5 and 2 Samuel 5. He said, uh, this is where the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. All right? Because, in other words, you're an insignificant town, but big things are going to come from you, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So it's really clear, the scripture is really clear when Messiah comes, that he will be not only a descendant of David, he would actually have been born where David was born in David's hometown. And so Herod then, okay, says, that's what I need, but he wants to keep this under wraps. Remember, what he's trying to do in his mind is take out a potential Messiah. 
the last thing he needs is a rebellion from the nation who believes Messiah has come and Herod's taken him out. So he's going to try to keep this under wraps. So he says, thank you very much. Just you know, curious. Sends away the religious leaders, calls in the Magi secretly. And let's see what happens. So he says when he called uh, in verse uh, 5, no, verse uh, 7. So Herod calls the Magi secretly, and he finds out from them the exact time the star appeared. Now why? Why does he care? Because he wants to know the age of this child. He wants to know, uh, hey, when the star appeared, I'm assuming that's when the child was born. When did the star appear? So I know how old the baby I'm looking for. And so, um, so they tell him. And uh, he says, okay, so I want you to go to Bethlehem, verse 8. Remember, it's five, six miles away, right? There's a new Walmart there. And uh, he says, I want you to go, and I want you to search carefully for the child. And the catch is, Herod doesn't know if the, if the, if the uh, Magi are right. He doesn't know if the prophecies are right, but he says, there's a good chance. You got magi, you got these prophecies. Let's go check it out. Look carefully. Make sure you don't miss anything. And if you find the child, then kind of report back to me so I can go and worship him too. That's why you've come. Then I want to worship him too. And they say, awesome. And so they head off to Bethlehem. Now remember, they didn't know where the child was going to be born. They know in Israel, they've come to the capital, that's about, and now these religious leaders are saying, hey, it's Bethlehem, that's what the scriptures say, so they're heading, they still don't know if it's right, like Herod. They don't know if Herod's right, they don't know if the prophecies are right, they don't know that, it's just like, well, hey, this is a shot, let's see, uh, but what's something that happens that's really interesting now is that, uh, verse 9, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose. It was a star that they, they had seen, first of all, way back in Babylon, months before, that initiated this long and expensive trip. All of a sudden, it begins to move. Now, notice, it's, well, there's no mention of it moving before this. But it begins to move, and they are excited. I, I want you to catch, these guys have risked a lot. These guys have 900 miles away, see a star, they have made their own interpretation. This is what we think it means. We think there's a king. And we are going to put together a caravan. Think how expensive it is just to put together like an expedition to climb Mount Everest with a few people. They put together most likely a caravan. They may be sent by a king. They've traveled 900 miles in the hopes they'll find this kid. They don't know. Now they've come. They've shown up in the capital. Hey, this is the best we could do. Can you help us? Anyone heard about a king? We're assuming a king's been heard about. Normally, when a king is born in ancient times, everyone knows. But no one knows. Everyone's like, what? King? No, we don't know. And they're like, what? What's going on here? So they meet with the local king, and he says, well, we got these ancient prophecies. They say, Bethlehem. Okay, I guess that's our best shot. So they head to Bethlehem, but now the star shows up. And imagine how excited they are. This is how it started their journey. And so now they're getting confirmed. And so they head to Bethlehem. And uh, it moves. It says it goes to, it stops over the place where the child was. We don't know if that means the, the village or, or a specific, more of a specific location within the village. But when they see it, they're, they're overjoyed. And so on coming to the house, they saw the child. They see the mother, Mary. And they bow down and worship him. Now catch this. Significant. Three times in this passage, Matthew will use the word worship. It's obviously important to him. 
The, the Magi said, we have come to worship him. Herod says, let me know where he is so I can worship him. When they get there, they worship him three times. Now, in the Greek, this word here is a word called proskuneo. It has a wide semantic range. In other words, it can be interpreted differently based on the context. So, for example, uh, this would be a common word, like if you're going before a Roman governor or the emperor and you bow down before him, that's proskuneo, right? You know, you're not worshiping him as a god, um, you're honoring him as a, a great leader, right? As, as you honor like before you do a king, right? So it can mean everything from that, like honoring all the way, semantic range to worshiping, like you'd worship one of the gods or you'd worship the God of Israel, right? So, so it's got the semantic range, and so the context decides. Here's the thing. My hunch is these guys didn't, they were not clear on who this child was. Uh, I'm sure they're seeing him as a Messiah figure, the great King, King David, point 2.0. As we'll say over and over in this series, no one in the first century expected God, the, 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 uh, the Messiah, to be God. No one expected that. They expect him to be the son of David, a great human leader. And so I'm sure that's their expectation. So when they come, they're honoring him as a king, right? And yet, Matthew writing this many years later says they were right on the money. They were doing more than they realized, but they were worshiping, which was the appropriate response for who we're going to find out, this God with us uh, in chapter one we just, we just read last week, right? So anyway, so they're going to worship, and now they're going to pull out their gifts. And uh, if you're ever wondering, like, what to give a king, there's some, a good list. Um, and so uh, in verse, um, uh, middle of verse, they said they opened their treasures, and they presented him with gifts. And so they're going to make three gifts. Uh, they're going to have gold. So like, when in doubt, you go to a baby shower, you're not sure what to give, gold always works. Uh, uh, frankincense and myrrh, not so much today. But in ancient times, very expensive uh, spices. So they were, you know, you could, you could transport them. They were worth great, uh, great a lot, uh, amount of money. And so, uh, so now, remember, they, they've gone to visit. Uh, they have found this, this child. Uh, they're excited. They've worshipped. Their mission is completed. And so now they're planning, okay, let's go back and tell Herod we found this child um, but what's going to happen is it's late in the day, apparently. They're like, hey, let's just, let's just stay here for the night. We'll, uh, we'll sleep here, and then we'll go back tomorrow. But that night, in the middle of the night, either one or more of them have a dream that warns them against going. So they're, they're going to they're take another way home, which last night was reminding me of a James Taylor song, but that's another thing. Uh, so uh, my wife's afterwards like, which James Taylor song? And we had to go to a thing out in Palmdale last night, and so... We're like looking it up and we found the song. But anyway, uh, I think it's called Another Way Home or something like that. But anyway, she's going, no, 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 that's not true. Like, yes, it is true, Land. And so we found it and we listened twice. But anyway, um, uh, anyway, Home by Another Way. That's what it's called, Home by Another Way. So anyway, um, so we, uh, uh, and they're, they're going to take Another Way Home. But it doesn't take, it doesn't take uh, Herod long to realize something's wrong. Like, he sent him out there. It's a small village, um, very small village. And they're not coming back. It's five or six miles away. Something is wrong. And so uh, he is going to go to plan B. Plan A was you come back and tell me who this child was, and quietly I can go out there and kill this kid. No one will know. That's plan A. Now he's going to be forced to go to plan B. He doesn't know if they found the child or not. Uh, he cannot afford to take the risk. And so based on the time that they give him, he probably gave himself 
uh, a little bit of leeway here. He's going to take out every baby boy two years and younger, which fits exactly with who Herod was, as we'll learn more next week. And so he's going to send his soldiers in the middle of the night. Uh, God is going to warm Joseph in a dream. And in the middle of the night, this young couple, probably 18, 19, 20 years old, they're going to take off and, and flee for their lives 70 miles to the south to try to outrun the soldiers of Herod to get to Egypt, a foreign land, before he catches up. So it's an amazing story. And I'm telling you, if, uh, for those who have eyes to see, it's so hard for us. I think it's so hard for us as 21st century uh, uh, Christ followers or explorers. It's so hard for us to see this account through uh, first century eyes, especially because Christmas has messed it up so badly. Uh, don't forget, no one celebrated Christmas in the early church until the 300s, right? So this is not a Christmas account at all. It raises the question, why is Matthew uh, telling it? But it's an amazing account. And for those who have eyes to see, I'm telling you, it is an incredible story. Uh, it, it, for those who have eyes to see, if we had never read this before, it would read like something out of Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia. You've got mysterious magi uh, magicians, magi, wizards from afar. You've got a bunch of Gandalfs, right? And, and they're, they're traveling over this long and dangerous journey, 900 miles, bringing gifts, gifts for a child who's been born supernaturally, and they're bringing great gifts of gold and spices, and when they get there, they make the mistake of trusting himself to an evil king. And so as they go to, to, to worship this child that's been born of ancient prophecies, uh, king is coming, sending out his spies. Uh, he's going to be sending his troops in the middle of the night. The young couple is going to rise up and have to flee in the middle of the night. It's like Prince Caspian. Uh, we're heading out. Uh, you know, so we're going to see next week what happens. So it's an amazing account. But the question is, since this has nothing to do with Christmas, why is Matthew telling the story? And what I want to do today in the time we have together is I want to highlight one big picture principle that we're continuing to see in these first four chapters of Matthew, uh, and then come back and ask one really important question. So there in your note sheet, you have a section that asks the important question, or the uh, the important point, the unexpected vision uh, that, that, you know, like, what is God up to? And so, um, so here's, here's the point that, that Matthew wants to make. Uh, and this is the point we're going to see over and over and over. We've already seen it once in chapter one. We're going to see it again, is that God has a plan. That God has a plan for human history, um, and that he is working his plan. And catch this, the plan is much bigger than the, most Jews in the first century could begin to imagine. This is where we actually have an advantage on them looking back. Um, a couple of things that we will, that if you are a first century Jew, that you would see in this account that would strike you as obvious or really catch your attention that we would miss. And the first thing that we'd see, less likely, we're not sure Matthew intends this, but very likely, is that if you... In, as you see these magi coming from a distant land to worship the king, you would very likely hear echoes of an Old Testament passage. And I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 72. So let me set this up. Um, remember when David was king, he said he wanted to build a temple. God said, you cannot build a house for me. I will build a house for you. Talking about a dynasty of kings. And he said that from your line, a great king will come who will rule forever. 
and uh, he will be like a son to me. I'll be like a father to him. And so from that point on, the kings of Israel often referred to as the sons of God. We'll see that in this psalm. And so this is a psalm associated with Solomon, and it's a prayer for probably Solomon or his kingdom, but kind of a prophetic psalm as well, speaking of the great son that will one day come. If you look at verse 1, endow the king with your justice, it's a prayer for the king, endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness and your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills, the fruit of righteousness, May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. May he endure as long as the sun and as long as the moon through all generations. May he be like rain falling on a moan field, on a moan field like sh- uh, showers watering the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. This beautiful vision of the kingdom of God. And then it says, may he rule from sea to sea and from the river, that'd be the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. He's going to catch us, not just Israel. And may the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish, like in Spain, and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. And then catch us, may all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. And if you're a first century Jew, it's very likely, as you would see these magi coming from a distant, perhaps even ambassadors of kings, bowing down and bringing presents. This this vision of the kingdom of God that would one day rule the earth is very likely in the back of your mind. God is up to something and something very big, bigger than you expected, perhaps something you've forgotten. But the second thing, and I think this is the most profound thing, this is the thing that would be the most obvious. If you're a first century Jew reading this, these are the wrong players in the drama. This is not how your storyline goes. If you're a first century Jew, when Messiah comes, we will rule the world, and we will kick butt on all Gentiles. We will be on top. They're like extras in the play. We call them the dogs. And not your cute little dog that flies on the plane like when I was coming back from Israel next to me. Uh, <laughs> not, this, no, not your cute little dogs that you love. I mean, dogs in the ancient world were like coyotes wild, running wild. The, gen, the Gentiles, the Jews called the Gentiles dogs. They were the extras. The reason they're in this story is we need someone to conquer, and we need someone to rule, we need someone to serve us. And so in this account, Matthew says the first people in his gospel who come and recognize who the king is and worship him are Gentiles. And they're not just Gentiles, they are Magi Gentiles. They are occult leaders, they are priests, they uh, worship other gods, they are experts in astrology and the black arts, everything that God has said in the Old Testament, you have nothing to do with, and the first people that come to worship the king are not Jews, not the king of Israel, not the people of Israel, not the religious leaders of Israel, but pagan Gentiles. And if you're reading this as a first century Jew, you're like, what? That is not how the story goes. No, 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 no. Back it up. Take two. Like, this is not right. And so from the very beginning, Matthew is 
firing his shot over the bow of gospel ship. And he's saying, this story is going places you're not expecting. And a story that starts in chapter 2 with Gentiles coming is going to develop in chapter 8 when Jesus says, hey, many will come from the east and west and sit down at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of the heavens, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. And by the time we get to chapter 28, Jesus will talk to his all Jewish disciples and say, as king of creation now, I am sending you into every nation of the earth to announce the news, a new king has come. And you need to bow the knee to this king and become a part of his kingdom. And so at the very beginning, Matthew is sending a story to his fellow Jews that this story is much bigger than you imagine. And this king is much bigger than you imagine. He is not just the Messiah of Israel. He is the king of creation. But this raises a question. And it raises a huge question that we're going to come back to time and time again in Matthew and begin to press it on you now so I can wear you down over time. And the question is, there in your note sheet, the important question, here's a question, is how are you responding to God's plan? If this is the plan that is from all eternity has been unveiled, that one from the son of David is going to rise up and be ruler not just of Israel, but all creation, and to bring all creation, think of that psalm we just read in Psalm 72, he's going to bring the kingdom of God when all wrongs are turned to right. If that king has come, how are you personally responding to that plan. And so what I want you to catch is that in these opening chapters of Matthew, the first four chapters, Matthew is presenting his case. He's like a, an expert attorney. You've all seen Law and Order, right? He's building a case, you know, da-dong. Uh, anyway, he's building a corner, he, you know, heinous crime. Anyway, he's building a case, and his case is that Jesus of Nazareth is crazy. He is the great king of Israel, but not just Israel, but all creation. And so he starts it off. In chapter 1, genealogy. He fulfills, he comes from the right line, right? The line of uh, Abraham, the line of King David. Uh, and then he begins a series of five or six fulfillments in the opening first four chapters to show us who Jesus is, how he fulfills, he, he brings the story of Israel to its completed end, and how he fulfills specific messianic prophecies. So first case, case he put out last week was the prophecy in Isaiah, a virgin will, be, will give birth to a supernatural child. God is coming to be with us. That was this first fulfillment. Today we have a second example the prophecy said this great king would not only be the son of David, he'll be born in Bethlehem. Sure enough, he was. Right? So he's building his case. But what we see today is if that's the case, a great king has come, the question is, how are you responding? And in this passage today, we see three distinct reactions. And my question is, which one is yours? So let's talk about the three. There in your note sheet, you've got uh, these three bullets. Number one, the first reaction is rejection. The first reaction is flat-out rejection. This is what we see in King Herod. When King Herod hears that a child may be born that's a fulfillment of prophecy, he doesn't care whether it's true or not. He doesn't care whether this is the Messiah. All he sees is a threat. There's no room in Herod's life for another king. He's already killed at least two of his sons, maybe three of his sons by this time, 
to preserve his kingdom. He has killed his favorite wife, Miriam, the princess, the Jewish princess, to preserve his kingdom because he believes wrongly that she is part of a plot. It's going to kind of drive him mad. He's going to go around the, his palace from that point out calling out for her. It was a mistake, right? Like Caesar Nero, uh, years later, would, would beat his wife to death that he loved, and then he would, the rest of his life, be looking for a replacement just like her. It's kind of that sort of thing. So, so this is Herod. He will do whatever it takes to preserve his kingdom. And when he hears that a potential Messiah is born, he doesn't care if it's true. He doesn't care if it's from God. There is no room for another king in his life. And so he's going to try to take him out. And this is a very common response even today. I want you to think back in your life before you came to Jesus. There may be some of you here today that you're exploring Jesus. You may be feeling some of this. There's something within us that realizes intuitively, if Jesus is king, I am not. And that is very threatening. And so think back when when someone first shared Jesus with you, it's very common that your first reaction might have been to discredit that witness, to come up with 18 reasons why it's not true. Now, sometimes this is because we have honest intellectual questions. That's great. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about often when you're sharing Jesus with someone who's not yet a believer, they begin to throw a million reasons why this cannot be true. And it's not because necessarily they have honest issues. The reason is because they sense intuitively, if he's king, my life has to change. And I'm not ready for change, so I'm going to throw everything I can to kill this king. Everything, everything I can to discredit, everything I can. It's interesting, you know, C.S. Lewis, the famous uh, author, writer, Oxford prof, Cambridge prof, you know, Chronicles of Narnia fame. You may know this, but when he was a younger man, he was an atheist, he was an agnostic. And so eventually, over a series of years, he came to believe that there was a God, that was first step, and then step two is that Jesus Christ had revealed that God, and he became converted to Christianity. And so many of his secular friends at the time said, the reason that you're converting is not because it's true, not because of the evidence, but because deep inside you want it to be true. You want there to be a God. You want there to be meaning in life. You want it to be the purpose. And Lewis said, are you serious? That was the last thing I wanted. The idea that there's an omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresent, everywhere, omniscient, knows everything, being, and that I report to that person, that was terrifying to me. And so for many of us, before we come to Christ, people you're sharing Christ with, They sense us intuitively. If he's king, I'm not, and I'm not ready to change. I'm not ready to bow the knee. Anyway, Tim Keller, in one of his books, famous pastor, author, he says, King Herod's reaction to the Christ is, in this sense, a picture of us all. If you want to be king and someone else comes along saying that he is a king, then one of you has to give in. Only one person can sit on the absolute throne. I love this. In every heart, then, there's a little King Herod. That conjures up an interesting picture, right? Hey, you know, uh, (laughs) let me out. Uh, That wants to rule and is threatened by anything that may compromise its omnipotence and sovereignty. Each of us wants to be captain of our own soul, the master of our own fate. Where is the true king? 
That question is the most disturbing question possible to the human heart since we all should say it. We, should, we all want at all costs to remain on the throne of our own lives. If the Son of God is really born in a manger, then we have lost the right to be in charge of our lives. And so first response is rejection. A second response is more tricky and more interesting in many ways. It's, it's the response of indifference. Now, this is a second one, and this is fascinating to me. This is the response of the religious leaders. And honestly, this one blows me away. You've never thought about it. This is crazy. We've already seen that when the wise men, that men, the magi arrived in Jerusalem, the whole city was uh, aware of it, aroused. So, so they're obviously aware of that. He calls them into the palace. Herod does. says, where should he be born? In Bethlehem, five, six miles away. There's a new Walmart there, right? It's close. And yet, to the best of our knowledge, there is no indication that these spiritual leaders of the nation called Uber <laughs> and paid the small fare to go five or six miles to check it out. Now, how crazy is this? You are the spiritual leader of the nation. You are expert in the scriptures about the Messiah. The whole cry of the nation, every week in synagogue, you pray for the coming of Messiah in his kingdom. And yet, when you have magi coming, talking about a magical star that's led you 900 miles and the king calls you in to ask where this child will be born, do you think you might say, hey, maybe I should check it out? Isn't that crazy? But to our indication, there is no, there's nothing in the test that suggests that they went to even check it out. And I think this is an often a common response to the message of Jesus today. This is the claim the Bible's making. There's a time and a place where a God who created time and space became part of the human race to rescue us. And many of us in our culture today are like, well, that's really interesting. I have some errands to run today. It's like we're indifferent to it. I mean, it's not like we've never heard this story. In our culture, every Christmas we hear the story. And yet every Christmas, as a culture, how many people say, hey, let me go five or six miles and check this out? This is a pretty big story. But here's what's interesting to me. What's interesting to me is those of us who call ourselves Christ followers who don't go five or six miles to check it out. And last week we talked about chapter one, right? And we talked about how God is pursuing us through time. He pursued the nation of Israel through the tabernacle, through the temple. Then Christ became the tabernacle. Now he comes to live within us. We're heading for the new Jerusalem where God will be with us. Where the story of the Bible is God pursuing us. And I ask you the question, are we pursuing him? And we talked about this. It's an amazing story that we're a part of, but how many times we're just too busy? We don't pursue him. We don't have time to get in his word. We don't have time to pray. We just, our lives are busy. We've got work. We got kids' sports. We got adult sports. We got NFL draft. Uh, we, we, we have got, uh, we've got video games. We've got financial portfolios. We've got a house to take care of. We've got baby showers to go to. We've got neighbors that are irritating. We've got all, not personally, we have got so much going on, and so we will say, you know what, I would love to pursue the king, but I'm just too busy. 
They're indifferent. And here's the thing. They may just look indifferent, but as time will show, as this young child grows up, 30 years old, launches his ministry, guess who are going to become the greatest enemies? The indifferent. The religious leaders here, their descendants, that tradition will become the greatest, and they will not just resist Jesus, they will eventually want to put him to death, just like Herod. And here's what I want to challenge you with. Indifference is often a cover for deep rebellion. It's easy for us to say, hey, I'm just too busy. It's easy to say, I've just got other things. I want to do it. I just don't. But the reality is, we often sense, if I got serious with this king, it would require change in my life. And then there's your third response. And of course, this is a response of worship. And this is a response of the Magi. And I got to tell you, these will be the guys voted most unlikely to succeed. They're pagans. They're uh, 900, they don't have to go five or six miles to Bethlehem. They've got to go 905 miles to Bethlehem. They've been raised in a pagan culture. They've been raised in the equivalent of Harvard University in their land. Uh, they have, uh, th- their studies have been incantations, spells. They've all gone to Hogwarts. You know what I mean? They, they have a totally different mindset and view. They have everything to lose. They've, it's going to be very expensive. And according to the Old Testament scriptures, everything they were involved with is an abomination, the sorcery. And yet, catch this, who is the ones that God sends a personal invitation to in a language they can understand? The language of the stars. Least likely to succeed. But these were men that something said, in spite of our gods, in spite of the way we've been raised, in spite of everything, there is something missing. And we're willing to invest our life in pursuing to find out if it's true. And so they'll make this long and dangerous journey. They'll risk a lot. They'll invest a lot because they want to find out if the story is true. Because if the story is true, it's a story that will make life worth, make, worth living. And so they're, they're the one, and you know what? This is a precursor of what we're going to see in Matthew. What you see is Matthew is the people who should come to Jesus don't. And the people who shouldn't come to Jesus do. And Matthew, we're going to see, it's not the religious leaders. It's not the Bible thumpers. It's not the religious people that are going to come to Jesus. It is the people far from God. It is the people, more often than not, or at least often enough, that are prostitutes, or they're robbers, or they're the unethical, or they're tax collectors, or the the unclean, or they're people that are not practicing the Jewish laws, ritual purities. These are the people that Jesus will eat with, and drink with, and welcome, and invite them into his kingdom. Least likely candidates. And so what we're going to see as we go through Matthew is three different responses. Those who reject the king in their life and want to kill him. Those who are initially indifferent, the way they'll look in Matthew is they're coming, they're excited at first, but eventually will leave him. Because his 
the cost is too high or because they have other priorities. And finally, we'll see people that bow the knee. And what we're going to see in Matthew is that there is only one way to become part of this kingdom, and that is on bended knee. And so the question is, as we kick off this series early on, I'm going to begin to ask this. I'm going to challenge you all the way through. Who are you? Are you a rejecter? Are you the indifferent? Or are you a worshiper? Let's pray. God, as we come to your word and we just let it speak with fresh power, we take off 21st century eyes, we go back and we see this incredible claim that's being made that Jesus of Nazareth is the king of creation and there's only one way to follow him and that's by bowing to his leadership. God, we pray that you would be speaking to us, not just today, but throughout the series and you would be calling us to a new place of true surrender that would bring the kingdom of the heavens in our life a new freshness and power. And God, we pray that we would truly pursue you. And as we worship you now, and as we bring you our gifts, our offerings, we pray you'd meet us in a powerful way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray together. All right, let's stand and worship. All I need is you, Lord. Lead me to a place of that presence. We talked about the presence of God last week, but one thing we need is the presence. There was only one group in the story that sought the presence. It wasn't King Herod. It wasn't the religious leaders. And so the question that's going to loom large for us as we go through this series is, which group are we? Are we those, we those, those who reject, those who are indifferent, or those that pursue the worshipers? May this be a week that in your life, you pursue, that you go that five or six miles to Bethlehem in search of the king, in your life, your walk with God, your times in the word, your times of prayer. You would seek the Lord in your life group, that you would come in, not with an attitude of just, hey, what's happening here, and just I'm busy in the day, but as we go to our life groups this week, we would say, hey, we are coming to pursue. We're here for the king. We're not here to waste a night. We're not here just to hang out. We are here to pursue the king. Last week in my life group, we had such an amazing time of pursuing the king together. Amen. People share their journeys, what God is doing. And when it's, time, it's a time for us to rise up and pursue the king, yeah. right? We don't come here to church just to go through motion. We come here on weekends to pursue the king. Yeah. We don't go to our life groups just to go through the motions and catch up. We come to pursue the king. Yeah. Yeah. We don't just go through the weekend, occasional prayer up to God on the freeway, God help me with my day. We set aside some time to pursue the king. We want to go to Bethlehem. We want to be worshipers. We want to bring our best and say, these are treasures. Are you with me? Are we going to pursue the king? Amen. May this be a week you pursue him. Together we make that trip to Bethlehem and we pursue the king. And may this be a week that you find the king where he guides you by his star and by his word to his presence. And you find him there and your life is never the same as a result. This is the next week of this journey. As you go today, if you want to pursue him in prayer right now, you feel like God's calling to you, whether it's here or over in the ridge, both ways it works the same way. To my right, your left, they have a prayer team, badges on, love to pray with you. So if you need prayer, over there. And then let's go out this week and let's say, Jesus, will you teach me how to pursue you 
and will you show me what it looks like to walk five or six miles to Bethlehem this week? Amen? Amen. 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 God bless you guys. Love you. I'll see you next week.